Hi everyone, before we start, this is just me from the cutting room and you know when there is a message from the cutting room, it will be a great message. Um, unfortunately, we had a little bit of a hiccup with our technical setup. I don't want to put blame on anyone, but not everybody sounds amazing. This episode, I beg for forgiveness. Uh, please just stick with us. I think it's still a very fun episode, but... We sound a little bit less ideal and so sometimes when you hear a little static crackling or stuff like that, that's not your headphones, that is us. Next week will be better, I promise. So now let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Plants and Pipettes podcast. We're back the second time after our long summer break and we're doing fine. <laughs> We're doing completely fine. Um, Yoram, this week you have exciting news to tell everyone. <laughs> yeah, um, for the first time ever, I'm saying today <laughs> that uh, it 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 worked. Like my, I last week I talked, uh, I said about, <laughs> I talked about me looking for a job. I asked everybody mm -hmm. to send me lots and lots of job offers, and it worked. I found a job. Um, by something that I applied to myself and I found myself, but uh, they they offered me a job. I haven't signed anything yet, so I can't really tell any details right now. I will do that next week, hopefully, when I sign the papers. But um, okay. yeah, job hunt is quickly over. It's it started. I, I had to send out only three applications, and I got lucky. I'm very fortunate. I'm really happy about this. And really excited for the new stuff and really excited to tell you what it is like next week, but I don't want to jinx it by <laughs> being like too early and then something, I don't know, whatever gets in the way and then I don't have the job and then it's weird. So you all have to wait. Well done. Very amazing news and congratulations. And <laughs> yeah, exciting. Uh, as long as it's not stuff that's related to like plant communicate, like plant science communication, we're fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If it's not. It's, it's, otherwise, it, no, no, otherwise we have yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what have you been up to tegan uh did you eat something nice did you do something fun uh actually i've been meeting the parents of my boyfriend in the last few days which is a bit of a weird relationship thing yeah. like, it's exciting and terrifying I mean, and fun and weird all at the same time mostly terrifying just pretend to be normal just pretend to be normal just pretend to be normal <laughs> Like, <laughs> I mean, they found it weird that I'm like rocking backwards and forwards and quietly muttering that to myself, but like, <laughs> that's fine. Yeah, no, it's been, it's been really nice, um, but super busy just trying to do all of the normal things and then mm -hmm. do family stuff as well. And Shall we talk about plant science? No, I want to mention that I'm also becoming full hipster by doing a pottery course. I don't know if I mentioned this last week. Um, I started last week, well, I started, yeah, a week and a half ago and I did my second one last Thursday and I'm really bad at pottery uh, so far. <laughs> I, we made pinch pots, which is sort of when you just pinch the clay open with your hands. Mm -hmm. So that's like, it's hard to get it looking completely beautiful and even, but it's also harder to like completely damage it and, and ruin it. And then last week we did throwings. We did stuff on the wheel. So mm -hmm. very, you know, 1990s ghost, very romantic with yourself and like squishing the clay and, you know, humming delightfully. I always and have to think it's really, about... It's really, really hard. <laughs> always have to think about a community episode where they have a pottery class and the first rule of the pottery class is no mentions of the movie Ghost. <laughs> Under no circumstances. Yeah. <laughs> In fairness, like I actually didn't think about it when I was doing the the clay throwing stuff because it was so hard to do the clay throwing stuff, and I don't think I have a natural aptitude for it. And I 
I found that offensive that it doesn't come naturally and then I'm going to have to <laughs> apparently work at this to make it happen. But yeah, um, yeah, I made some, I made three kind of pots and by kind of, I mean the first one completely collapsed in the side. So it's, I don't know, half a pot. The second one collapsed on one side. The instructor very optimistically was like, that's great. It will make a really good milk jug. Just point it here, <laughs> which I think was like, like overly kind, I would say almost enabling level of kind. <laughs> um, Just means you will make so many milk jugs. <laughs> so many milk jugs. And then the third attempt was kind of pot shaped. So there was some improvement, um, but that's my, my current journey of um, becoming more and more hipster and hopefully, mm -hmm. yeah, getting getting some really, I mean, you're a, Guess what you're getting for your birthday? <laughs> Some really <laughs> awkwardly no, malformed pots going out to my friends. No, my, my, my partner was doing that as well like a while ago. And we have like some of my favorite pottery that we have in our sort of daily use is from her. And it's like, it's far from like technically perfect, but it's still like so charming and nice to have something self-made. Like even mm. if my partner did it in that myself, but still I know like she, she made it. She, it's like something that she envisioned and, and, put into being and i find that really fun and, and nice even if it's like if if you would say oh the, the bottom is too thick or the walls are not the right shape or the glazing didn't work perfectly all of these things like they don't matter as long as it's your thing and uh, i i would like to do pottery as well at, at some point i think it's so fascinating i watched like this netflix show on pottery um the great throw down yeah like several mm -hmm. seasons of it and i really enjoyed that um, but I so that's like that's like the ghost thing in our class. The instructor keeps on mentioning this throwdown show, and I haven't seen it, and I feel like I'm missing <laughs> what all the other cool kids know as well. So let's talk a little bit about plant science. My favorite plant. Yeah, so I wanted to do a bit of a yarm thing and not talk exactly about one species of plants, <laughs> but speak more about a concept that plants bring to us. Um, and this concept also comes out of something entirely pretentious and hipsterish I did in the last couple of weeks, which was learning how to do natural dyeing with indigo plants. Mm -hmm. So indigo is technically sort of a genus or like there's one so there's the indigofera genus and then there's one species of plant that is most commonly used to um, dye things indigo so that's indigofera tinctoria and the tinctoria is basically the tincture it's, it's the coloring aspect of that name and this is true indigo it's the species of plant it's sort of um in the bean family so the fabaceae and this is kind of one of the the og sources of indigo dye but there's also another species of plant which is not closely related at all, but produces the same chemical that gives the coloring. And that's commonly called woad. Um, this is actually a brassicaceae, so it's a mustard family plant, which means it's a kind of close relative of our favorite lab rat plant, Arabidopsis thaliana. And this is called Isatis tinctoria. So again, we've got the tinctoria because it's a coloring. Um, plant but it's a completely different genus and it's yeah it's a mustard it's not a bean it's something far over so woad was originally used more commonly in europe um it was 
basically this source of blue dye in the European regions until they worked out that everybody else in other parts of the world had been using indigo instead and it's actually much better and in fact i think the name indigo the color indigo has an origin of coming from india so this is kind of this background of where this plant was used um, and developed but dyeing with indigo is something that's been going on for many many years um, there's fabric dyed indigo that dates six thousand years ago um, in Peru, and there's also been sort of ancient uses of indigo in India, as well as China, Japan, and lots of different parts of Asia, as well as through like Mesoamerica, um, also Iran, um, also West Africa. So it's sort of been pretty common that people have learned how to color things with these plants, and also that it's been quite a highly valued thing. So we've discussed this quite a few times before on the podcast that getting colors like red and yellow are pretty easy. So yellows and oranges are produced um, very easily by plants like carotenoids. And you can sort of steal those colors and color things yellow and orange really easily. Reds, people are often using um, dirt and stuff as well. So soils as well to give those colors um, and bugs as it turns out also but blue was always a little bit more of a rare color and and this kind of dark purpley blue that is indigo has always been super valuable yeah I'm, I'm looking i'm looking at some of these plants and they all are like very red or sometimes a little bit purplish um so is it then the flowers that have the indigo in them or which part of the plant is that actually it's actually in the leaves, but they don't have a huge percentage of the dye. So I think it's only like 0.2% or something like this is commonly found within in the leaves. So it does have to be extracted. And realistically, so when we think indigo, the, the product that we use most that's related to this is like blue jeans, right? So that has that kind of mm -hmm. indigo color. But realistically, it's now possible to synthesize indigo using chemical means. So since 1880, there's been a, a method which just involves basically popping some chemicals together and getting a lot of this dye instead of extracting it out of the plant. So the plant is a little bit more tricky because you have to, you know, get quite small percentages out of the plants. You usually do sort of a smushing or a drying or a drying and a smushing, and then you have to um, sort of seep it in water to extract it. But the actual bluey purple pigment itself is not water soluble so you want to be doing um, a reducing step to keep it in the water soluble form um, so that it can then be absorbed by the fabrics so you do a reduction um, this converts the indigo into something called white indigo which makes it sort of soluble in the water and then that goes into your fabrics and then only when you pull the fabrics out and they they hit the oxygen basically um they're oxidized again and then they revert from this sort of colorless thing back into the blue so this is quite a cool process to actually see in person um you're squishing out the leaves um either fresh leaves or dried leaves or like an extracted powder and you're adding um something very alkaline and some some fructose or a reductant in there and you dip your fabric in and it comes out and it's it's not blue to start with it's sort of like a, a slightly yellow color because there's also some some yellowy colorings in the leaves and it's only when it gets exposed to the air that it sort of develops in this sort of very photo development sort of way um mm. except responding to the oxygen not to the light into this bluer 
color. So kind of a cool process. Yeah, it's really exciting. Now I am also curious to try it. What I liked also is that, I mean, so there's this purple thing, which is what your your aim is, but these different plants also have other colorants in them and they also can do different different have different properties depending on how you're using the plant so we did some dyeing with fresh indigo leaves um straight onto sort of a felty wool and got this kind of greeny blue color um we used you know the dried leaves to get a deeper bluey purple hue and with the woad so this other thing which also does have the purple pigments we also just did a sort of straight up boiling and then we got this kind of pinky colors as well so you can sort of play around with the chemistry really and get different types of of dye from that how how much plant material did you use like is that can you can you grow that at home the amount yeah i think so so um we were only dyeing very small bits of cloth and it obviously depends also how intense you want the blue to be so basically you can make this dye bath with a certain amount of of the material but then every time you're dipping your fabric in you're depleting the dyes you're taking them onto your fabric and then it gets it gets weaker and weaker so it would depend on how much fabric you want to dye Mm -hmm. ultimately um it's not a small amount though i think you know to do the proper dark dyeing you need quite a lot and usually you'd use like the dried leaf so then the easier thing to do is to buy the powder which has already been processed um so extracted from the leaf and concentrated and then you can sort of make still a fermentation bath and and use that instead I think it was a really nice um, process because it sort of combined the chemistry elements and the planty elements. And also, I mean, this kind of natural dyeing thing, I think, is super fascinating. I would say it was a bit of this experience where the people who do the course were a little bit more alternative than me in some ways. So one older lady, she asked me what my job was and I mentioned that I work with climate change and she felt a strong desire or urge to first tell me that she was skeptical about climate change and tell me that in fact the earth always went through <laughs> different climates oh over God. time oh and <laughs> then also completely unprompted explained that she also was skeptical about covid and then also had a 10 minute conversation about how she was allergic to her cat but then somebody gave her some homeopathic sugar pills and now the allergy was gone so i didn't i didn't really know how to explain respond to that especially because that part of her argument was that actually with covid the only people who died were people with underlying conditions and i was just like <laughs> cool <laughs> that's me and i really like being alive right now i don't know it was very it was a bit weird um But overall, I really love this kind of thing and I want to do more of this thing. So I think that's a little bit the cost of doing hipster things is that sometimes mm -hmm. you meet different people with other experiences in life. But but maybe later I have some tips for you how to deal with that next time. But that's sort of giving, uh, that's something coming up after <laughs> after this segment. So that's the two plants. Then there's Indigofera tinctoria, which is the true indigo. And then there's also the woad plant, which has the name Isatis tinctoria. And then sort of connected to that whole indigo process is somebody who was involved in developing indigo as a sort of important, I don't know, crop is not the right word, but yeah, kind of a, a cash crop species in America in sort of the early America days. Um, and the person who is given a lot of credit for this, her name is Eliza Lucas. 
So she's Eliza Lucas Pickney and she was um, the daughter of somebody quite important, a lieutenant colonel who was in the area. And that her father sort of went to Antigua and was traveling around and she be, sort of got in charge of running his house, looking after her siblings and looking after everything there. Um, and so this is a very problematic history because Lisa was in South Carolina and owning enslaved people, which obviously is not okay. Um, but what's interesting is that it was actually the knowledge of these people who developed the the crops. So they, she ended up getting these seeds from her father, um, which were indigo seeds, and she was experimenting with lots of different species to see what could be cultivated in the climates in South Carolina. She experimented with ginger, cotton, alfalfa, and hemp, um, but then she started also getting indigo seeds and sort of playing around with those. And so historically she's given a lot of credit here and she did obviously do some development she played around with different crops and made this very successful so i think when she started there was about five thousand pounds of indigo dye crops in the area and it went up to one hundred thirty thousand in just like two or three years from this development that she did and it became the second highest cash crop in that whole colony. So it was second only to rice, which obviously is a staple. Um, and yeah, she has sort of been celebrated for that. She also, she had really good writing. So she was writing about day-to-day -day life. So you get a lot of like what she was doing and she got inducted into the South Carolina Business Hall of Fame. And she was the first woman to get into the sort of like male dominated business hall of fame. But it's important to note that this knowledge that she actually used to develop these crops was from the enslaved people who she had on the plantation. So she actually specifically was asking them because they had grown up in areas where this indigo dyeing was already used and they had experience with the plants. So it seems like there's a lot of their knowledge that has gone into this and obviously um, not credited in this case. And obviously they themselves didn't have any freedom, but it seems like the development that happened there came from their work and their experience in the countries that they were taken from. So there's, yeah, a not great history there, but I think this is one of these things where, yeah, somebody got credit for something, mm -hmm. which very much relied heavily on the knowledge of somebody else or some other people. Yeah, yeah, especially indigenous knowledge is something that I think we're also like still in the process of learning that. I think we've had other stories in the past as well about the value of indigenous knowledge also for current plant research. Like we're like we're not we're still in like still in our time we know less in certain aspects than indigenous people who grew up with certain plants who use plants culturally for hundreds or of years or longer um and we still should learn more from that and 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 take more of that and i think there's now more efforts or more awareness for this um but it's yeah it's not over it's not that like in with the turn of the century or something um this, this effect diminished or became less important i think still today Uh, listening to indigenous people and or like people's culture and their use of plants and their culture is still very valuable to this day. 
Yeah, so I think, I mean, even in Elisa's Wikipedia, there is a small comment about this, but it's it's not really expanded on. But it talks about the fact that um, in the South Carolina area, there's a group of people, the Gula, who are sort of this distinctive group of black Americans who were from the South Carolina, Georgia region. And they sort of had critical mass and were able to keep some of their language, some of their traditions, um, some of their sort of connections. And part of that was because they were all deliberately taken like you know they were chosen because they had this knowledge so mm -hmm. they were highly desired they were enslaved but they were wanted because they had this experience working with mm -hmm. these difficult crops they knew how to plant it how to harvest it and how to process it and because of that they were preferred as slaves um and then they sort of got a critical mass in this region but i mean that's sort of really highlighting the fact that yeah, these people were treated worse than horribly, even though it was known that they had so such valuable skills that, I mean, mm -hmm. this is like survival skills, right? This is like what kept people alive. They're, they're, harvest, they're growing and harvesting rice. So, yeah, I think a bit missing still or a bit not commented on still, but clearly that this history. Let's talk, talk, talk about bias, bias, bias. bias. So as I mentioned before, um, I have maybe some tips now for you, Tegan, exactly for the problem that you ran into. Um, so let's say you wanted to discuss with that lady about, for example, COVID. Um, what mm -hmm. would you have done? Like, how would you have built your case? I did not do very well. I tried to not engage her. And then when I was talking to somebody else, she again interrupted the conversation and told me that COVID measures were overblown and only people with underlying conditions died. And then I just kept on saying, I really like being alive. And she was saying, but there's going to be long-term effects of the lockdowns. And I was like, yes, but you know what else is long-term? Me being dead. And I just kept on repeating that. <laughs> so... Is that the correct way to do things? <laughs> it's it's surprisingly close to um, a correct way. Um, I found a story that uh, looked where they did a, a large-scale study with surveys and also, uh, funnily enough, the analysis of over 300,000 comments on YouTube videos, which is a place like YouTube comments is something I usually tend to avoid, but these researchers looked into that. Um, and they looked... Uh, at major like divisive topics um, like gun control, coal mining, abortion, um, and looked at what does it take to convince people to change their opinion, to change their their idea about certain things. And these are all topics that are very divisive, where you are either on one side or the other. There's very little middle ground there, and uh, this is a discussion that has been going on for forever. And what they found is mm. that um, when they specifically compared uh, using facts to convince somebody and personal experience that personal experience worked much better because um, as they they learned in their study facts are often seen nowadays also as something to dispute when it doesn't go um, to support your own point your own opinion then you start to doubt the facts and but when uh -huh. but it's like from a human standpoint harder to doubt another person's lived experience 
Um, so it's as, quite awful though, isn't that as in a conclusion? Yeah, like, it is. That works both ways. I mean, that that doesn't work in the favor of science, does it? It works both ways. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, the the final conclusion that I come to is that we need a mix of these things. But um, to sort of open up somebody to actually be willing to listen to you is, and here I'm quoting from the senior researcher and social psychologist Kurt Gray from the University of North Carolina. Um, uh, who was involved in the study, I believe, is what you have to do basically uh, is invite someone to see you as a rational, feeling human being. And only when they empathize with you on that level, um, and now that's, that's me again speaking, um, when you empathize with somebody on that level, uh, you are actually willing to take their point of view and then maybe change your own opinion and if you just read the facts if you just get a breakdown of the facts if you get a breakdown of the facts in very simple words all of that is not convincing to you because you think these are the wrong facts these are the facts of the enemy these are the facts that i don't want to listen to but if somebody gives you their personal lived experience and then maybe backs them um backs them with more facts or has additional insights based on facts um that gets more convincing uh, and they also like uh, there's also a quote that says what people need to do is have conversations that expose their vulnerability so instead of speaking sort of taking yourself out of the conversation and being like these are the facts these are the studies these are the numbers you have to say this is my lived experience this is how I lived like how I approach this question and here are some studies that back up my own experience and this is more effective than just going with the facts which I find for, especially for science communication a very important point and something where like, I, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what to make of this but uh, when it comes to these big topic discussions maybe this is something we have to get do more get more people involved to have lived experience that can be used to convince other people i yeah i i can i i think it's logical i can see the point but i just see how that works so well for the other side because you know you can just stay on the lived experience and not have to do the facts and a lot of people are convinced by the lived experiences already right you don't have to go to the facts at all yeah yeah and that's uh i mean that can be very problematic. Um, then we are in the area of purely anecdotal uh, opinion base, uh, like forming of opinions, and that can lead to very bad places. So it's 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 not reassuring this finding, but it's something that I think can explain some of the disconnects that we have seen between sort of public communication and science communication and the response of people in general. Uh, where you would say, oh, all of the facts are on the table. We know this and that. We have we have here the studies, and still people ignore that. Like mask mandates, how there are so many studies that show that masks work, but then you have people who have lived experiences where the masks were annoying, where they had difficulty breathing sometimes, and that's convincing more than. My lived experience is that I don't enjoy wearing a mask. And it's very hard to say that my lived experience is also that by wearing a mask, I was a bit safer because that's not something that I can really experience. Like, even though it's a reality and a fact, like yeah. what I'm experiencing is the discomfort of the mask. And I don't really register that I'm all the benefits, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's, that's. Just makes it, that's that's makes it really really um, that makes it more challenging for our profession. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. 
Hey Yaram, do you yes. know what a phytotelma is? Phytotelma. Um, I mean, phyto is plant. That's easy. But Telma, I yeah. have no idea. <laughs> so I came across a review article in um, the Wiley Journal Ecology and Evolution, which is called Aquatic Islands in the Sky, 100 Years of Research on Water-Filled Tree Holes. And it's just a review article, but the authors talk about the fact how, like, they start the introduction by saying, very few biotic frontiers remain on this planet. And then they mentioned that one of the, the frontiers that we haven't got to, um, you know, depth of the ocean, I would probably say, but it's the water-filled tree holes that are found up in the canopy of the forest. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, on the top of a tree, canopy is defined as anything above two meters. So basically you can't peer into it from the ground. Um, there's sort of bits that end up having holes in them and these can be really important ecosystems they can sort of be a resource for water but also just like an overall habitat where you can find anything from bacteria algae fungi but also nematodes insects small crustacean amphibia little frogs and tadpoles um and lots of other things so they're these really cool ecosystems and I think I've talked about something similar before. I have a little bit of a fascination with bromeliads, which are these plants that sort of form circular pots on the ground. Mm -hmm. um, they can also be on canopies. We sort of see them on the ground in our garden, but in the jungle, they are also epiphytes. They also cling to trees. So they would make up some of these special aquatic islands in the sky. But then I was looking up what these are and how they exist beyond the bromeliads that I know. And I found that there's this overall term for them so phytotelma where telma comes from a greek word that means basically lake i think um yeah pond and phyto as you said is plant so we have like a, a pond in the plant and it turns out there are different types of them there's been two sort of maybe not warring but you know two different people have tried to discuss how many of them there are um kitching in 2000 recognizes that there are five of them so bromeliad tanks was one of them also Carnivorous plants like pitcher plants. This is these big um, nepenthes, which have mm -hmm. like jugs and they basically fill with water. Um, they can eat organisms, but they can also be aquatic habitats. Um, Water-filled tree hollows is another one. The internodes of bamboo. So you know how bamboo can make that kind of little pot. Mm -hmm. um, water that collects at the base of um, leaves and also sort of if you think at the very bottom of the plant you get like little pools in there so that's five as defined by kitching and then another author um greeny in 2001 so one year later was like no nah, you're wrong there's not five of them there's actually seven different types so he had tree holes these can be formed by things like woodpeckers um leaf axles again to so the edges of the leaves flowers also modified leaves so i think that would be the pitcher plants fallen vegetative parts so like leaves or things mm -hmm. on the ground fallen fruit husks mm -hmm. i don't know if maybe that includes like a coconut and also stem rots so in any case there are all these amazing ecosystems all around us and we should all be going out and searching for banana leaf axles or random holes in trees that have been pecked by woodpeckers and have now filled up with water because there's a whole world inside them yeah yeah that's that's really exciting. Uh, just thinking, like, we have a walnut tree in the garden and all of the walnut shells, they, when they are with the, the bass inside up, 
they are little pools mm -hmm. and they are little ecosystems and it's really really exciting to think about that also how ephemeral ephemeral they are they they exist for often a shortish amount of time like for the lifespan of the leaf or for the la until the the walnut thing is cracked yeah just just long enough for mosquitoes to breed in them and then they're gone <laughs> yeah 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 but it's um That's really that's really exciting. I found um, that's not something that's not really a fact, but something that I've like from my my experience. I recently found in my garden. Like speaking of weird little ecosystems, uh, on my on my lawn, uh, one morning I found just a small patch with small blackish um, balls or buds on the leaves on the blades of the grass. And they looked like insect eggs or something, and I had no idea what it was. And I googled, and it was oh, um, there's somewhere like there's a kind of mite that lives in the lawn that can bite humans and can make like really itchy rashes. Yeah. Um, also, some like fleas that can be in the lawn. Um, but then I figured out it was actually slime mold, uh, and the slime mold constantly lives in the soil and eats soil-dwelling uh, creatures like bacteria and other like um, worms and and like microscopic things. And sometimes when the conditions are right, like after 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 the rain that we just had, um, they then within a day they make these they they form these fruiting bodies on the on the leaf blades, and by the end. They change color. They are very colorful in the morning. They turn black and then they release their spores. And by the end of the day, they're pretty much gone. And you can really easily miss them. And that's why it's not very well known that they exist. But sometimes uh, when the conditions are right, you can sort of catch them in the act of reproducing. And I found that time very lapse, exciting. Time lapse. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's gone already by now. Uh, and I don't have a microscope. I, I really... I'm really thinking about getting a microscope also for doing like science stuff with my kid. Uh, it would be really cool. I mean, he's quite too young right now, but eventually I think it would be really cool to have a microscope. And then when you find something like this, just like take a sample and look at it on the microscope and see the spores of the, of the fungus and um, yeah, observe that and observe these sort of random little bursts of, of ecology and biology happening. I found something about uh, why, again, I don't know, I have like COVID-related topics today. Um, the bees maybe should mask up when they visit flowers. And I mean, yeah, maybe it, maybe the mask would actually help. Um, there's, did you know that the, the poo, the, the feces of bees make them sick? Sorry, what? Yeah, when bees poo, uh, when they poop on plants or like on flowers specifically, and then another bee steps in that and then ingests that, parasites and uh, diseases can be transmitted from bee to bee. And researchers have now f uh, figured out that flower shape has a big impact on the likelihood of this transmission hap to, to happen. So certain flowers are more likely to... Um, allow transmission of these uh, of, of bee poo from one bee to another and therefore like any pathogens in there and that this is uh, wider and shorter flowers they are more mm -hmm. likely to to contain like concentrate the poo on a, at a certain location that then bees visit that and then they get that uh, on them while uh, narrower and longer flowers have a smaller 
um, probability of transmitting the disease. So they say in the, in the article that I found, they say wider and shorter flowers are analogous to the small, poorly ventilated rooms where COVID is effi uh, efficiently transmitted among humans. So when mm. bees visit wider and shorter flowers, they should definitely mask up because the transmission rate there is much higher than if they go to narrower, longer flowers, which is the same as meeting outdoors for us, maybe, uh, where a mask can be useful but are not as critical. Okay, so this is not at all related to COVID, but I guess it's related to bugs somehow. Um... Yeah, let's go with that. So I, I think we've talked quite a few times about the fact that plants have this potential for airborne communication via these volatile organic compounds. It's always mm -hmm. shortened to Vox. I think it's a story that people always love because the idea of plants talking to each other seems really, really cool. And the, the coolest thing about it is that there's indications that they emit these volatile compounds when they get chewed by bugs. And these compounds are then sort of spread across the canopy, potentially to other plants, which means that plants nearby them or, you know, other plants of the same plant might know that there's bugs around. And this can then stimulate a secondary response. So it acts as a message which tells the plant to like start upping its defense so it, mm -hmm. it starts making all of these compounds that then taste disgusting to the caterpillars and i think the most famous research here that yoram's talked about before is that it doesn't actually have to be bitten by the plant the leaves just sort of having the vibrations that simulate the the sort of frequency of the gnawing of the caterpillars is enough to make these vox come about is that right yeah yeah i think i wrote about this for the blog a while ago now and they had like a little piezo motor thing like a vibrating thing with a rod on it and it just like very um gently at specific frequencies could vibrate leaves and that could be sensed by the plants and the plants would re react to that based on like they pretty much recorded a caterpillar and then played that back with that little pushy rot thing <laughs> and that worked and the, the plant would do the same as if the caterpillar would be there without any chemicals from the caterpillar or anything else or without any wounding actually it was just a vibration that was pretty pretty cool i think i kind of love it because i just like the idea that we are as humans are so bad at smelling things and there's just all this communication happening mm -hmm. at the level of scent that we don't get i mean even just sort of animals smelling things but then these you know these volatile organic compounds being sent and received it's effectively like the smelling equivalent so there was just a paper that came out in functional ecology uh, a couple of weeks ago and it's following up on this and it's looking at potato plants specifically and seeing how they make vox in response to herbivory they use just a generalist insect who likes to chew on these poor potato plants and they were testing not just whether this works, because we've already got evidence of that, but they were seeing how stress of the plant, in particular drought stress of the plant, can impact the response of the plants. And what they found is maybe not super surprising. They found that, yeah, if the plants were drought stressed, they were less likely to have these emissions. So it, it changed. It was a weaker induction of their vox, which might in turn mean that if, plants are more drought stressed they might be less able to um, protect themselves from insect herbivory and i think this kind of makes logical sense you know the plants already low on resources so you know the water is stressing it out and maybe it doesn't have the ability to sort of like push that response that it otherwise would but it is kind of important when it comes to things like 
crop plants and general plants' ability to respond to various stresses in the context of changing environmental conditions. So this is like quite a, a small scale study and like a, you know, advance on what we've had before, but I think it's always just this interesting Mm-hmm. element to consider you know it's one thing to have your plants in the greenhouse but when you put them into the wide wide world they're they're dealing with heat and bugs and you know everything else at the same time yeah i mean one more quick thing i found this was actually published in nature uh quite a while ago actually at the start of june but i don't think we picked up on it before and i just sort of came across it and it was something i hadn't really thought about very much so it's about that plants can sense oxygen and mm-hmm. I think we know a little bit about this because um, we know that, you know, bits of plant, obviously plants need oxygen, they need to respire, and there's bits of plant that are deep in the tissue which can have problems with hypoxia. But this is not just a problem in dense parts of the tissue. So, for example, in the middle of an apple, like how does the center of an apple get enough oxygen to keep on doing mm-hmm. the things it needs to do to grow? But it can also be um, a problem with plants growing at altitude. And it's just something I never thought about. Plants can grow at really extreme altitudes. They can go up to 6,400 meters above sea level, which is kind mm-hmm. of ridiculous. I So as you go up, the partial pressure of oxygen gets lower and lower and lower, and that is going to impact on plants' ability to survive. So there's this paper that came out in Nature where they're looking at how different plants have adapted and basically they're looking at the the methods that the plants use to um, sense when they have less oxygen and they were using the fact that making chlorophyll like the biosynthesis of chlorophyll actually requires molecular oxygen so if you make chlorophyll wrong you can have really dangerous byproducts made so they sort of reasoned that the plant had to have a way to know that it was getting enough oxygen for this process to go through. And based on that, they were looking at what the pathways that were involved were involved to, to sort of look at this oxygen content. And then they also looked across natural populations, um, which sort of were found at different altitudinal climbs to different levels up the mountain. And they could actually find that there was different altitude dependent activity of these 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 bits of the pathway mm-hmm. um, in different accessions so within the same species there was this difference in sort of populations and individuals which showed that there was likely some sort of local adaptation mm-hmm. so they would slightly regulate the metabolism according to how much oxygen was available or like how much oxygen pressure was available yeah exactly <laughs> that's that's really cool i did i i always thought they were just sort of like genetically adapted to that location or or the plant grows always with that same amount of oxygen so it doesn't really ah so actually this was this was not i i haven't read enough of the paper to know if this is plastic or um genetic changes only so yeah they say there was different amounts of i think the protein the the activity of the protein involved and its accumulation but I'm actually not sure if this is something that is sort of responsive within the generation, so plastic, or if this is something that's sort of genetic changes across the different accessions. Cat fact. And I have today a fact about the cats of the sea, which are dolphins. Um, 
No. I didn't know that this was actually yeah. a thing that the U.S. Navy is actually training dolphins in uh, for anti-mine units. So they are there to detect sea mines and I don't know what they do then, but somehow they detect them and then alert the, the Navy and then they can dispose of the sea mines. And I thought this was just from like sci-fi movies or I think there was like one weird video game that I played as a, as a kid where you had militarized dolphins in your in your arsenal. Um, but apparently that also happens. Um, but Sorry, when they detect them, what do they do? Do they report I don't know. back or do they just get blown up? I, I don't think they get blown up because I think they have very f small numbers of them. So it's not that they are disposable. I think they are very valuable to the military. So I don't okay. think that they... I, I imagine they must alert them somehow. Um, or maybe, maybe because that's the next part of the story, um, they just have GPS coordinate, like GPS devices and cameras on them. And so the dolphins find the sea mines, swim around them, and then later the camera feed can be checked together with the GPS coordinates, and then they can find the sea mines or something like this. They're sort of biological drones that go through the water and and record stuff, and that's, then they can I mean, that's that less training that's more just like i wouldn't call that training but they still okay, have to anyway. be interested in in the mines but um so they are trained somehow and they also like they are sort of held in captivity but what they do with these these um these dolphins and like this is sort of just the background until now um that they, sometimes they let them uh, run freely in certain areas in in the wild so they still have the their cameras attached to them and the gps stuff but they are left to hunt in the wild just as they please, just to, to make the dolphins happy. Uh, but then sure. that gives very interesting data on dolphin behavior and how they would actually um, feed in, in nature. Although these are like bred in captivity and trained dolphins, so there's some grains of souls there to be taken. But um, they found some interesting stuff. For example, that um, dolphins eat a lot by um, sucking in their prey, pretty much whole fish. They can create a, a massive vacuum um, and sort of slurp in their prey. I always thought they would bite on them and chomp them because they have these, these teeth. But um, the main mode of action is a slurping. And you can actually, uh, according to the article, hear that on the recordings that they suddenly do like... <laughs> And then they slurp in their prey and and have them and hold in their bodies. You can also hear that on our recording. <laughs> yeah. And they also um, found that one of the dolphins was specifically eating a lot of uh, venomous sea snakes. Um, and it was pretty much slurping them up like spaghetti. And they don't know if this is just sort of misbehavior because they are not actually living in the wild and they don't know that these, these snakes are venomous. Or if this and so it's sort of just like a weird freak accident thing that this this one dolphin is really into those or if they are actually um a, a, a standard sort of prey for dolphins that they in the wild also eat these snakes and slurp them up like um like big spaghetti like dangerous uh, spaghetti spicy or something from the poison and maybe it's it's that but so if you want to see some weird pictures from weird angles of the dolphins um check out the article that we put in the show notes like always um there you can see a little bit more of the what oh, the dolphins Jesus. look like and uh, how they how they eat it's like it's really distorted because they have this sort of gopro like camera attached 
on the side of their face so you have the, the yeah this will give you nightmares i think <laughs> so at do that at your own um at your own Arrow. risk um but yeah so this is camera dolphins that are trained to sniff out mines uh teach us that dolphins actually slurp their food okay i think on that completely unbelievable so-called <laughs> fact we will end our podcast today uh, thank you for joining us as always you can talk to us sometimes on instagram and facebook it's me at plants and pipettes if you want to talk to yarm go to twitter yeah that's at plants pipettes where you can talk to me and we also have a website where you can contact us via some linky thing there. It's <laughs> www.plantsandpipettes.com. And there we have a whole lot of articles that we wrote once upon a time, including one that Yoram wrote about vibrations and plant responses, probably, that yeah. Yoram will also link to in the show notes. Yes. Thank you for the homework, Tegan, to put, for me to put that in the show notes. But I will do that. As you will always, find our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Cross. And thank you. Until next week. Goodbye.